The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. So hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective, where we'll be looking at a blue economy model which is allowing the Port of San Diego in the US to explore innovative infrastructure solutions. I'm Nadine Badu, Features Editor for NCE, and joining me is our reporter Catherine Kennedy and two special guests, Tim Barrett, Senior Environmental Specialist for the Port of San Diego's Environmental Conservation Department, and Andrew Rella, who is the Global Director of Engineering for eco-engineering company eConcrete. Tim actively pursues innovative approaches to natural resources management via a cross-disciplinary approach to environmental science and ecology. He uses his diverse background incorporating science, construction and design into nature-based ideas and creative solutions to support the overall health of San Diego Bay. Andrew's work focuses around coastal, riverine and environmental engineering. Previously, he worked as a postdoctoral researcher and lecturer at Stevens Institute of Technology, New Jersey. His experience includes being a member of the coordinating team of the Hudson River Sustainable Shorelines Project, consulting on pilot projects for the New Jersey U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the American Littoral Society, and developing workshops for the Departments of Remediation and Environmental Protection, as well as co-authoring the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection's Living Shorelines Engineering Guidelines, and working with the New York City Economic Development Corps to develop oyster encasement technologies for enhancing marine piles. So firstly, Tim, Andrew, welcome to you both. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you for having us. Brilliant. So now I'm sure some of our listeners will will have never heard of the the term blue economy. So can you tell us what the concept actually means and when it was first conceived? Sure. And and honestly, there is a bit of flexibility in the definition, but it's really based on who you talk to, um, to an extent. But basically, it's the concept of encouraging stewardship and sustainable use of ocean resources for uh, economic growth and sustainable development. Here in San Diego, you know, it's an, it's an opportunity for uh, us to grow our local economy and create jobs, uh, improve livelihoods, while also protecting and improving the health of our bay. And the, the blue economy, the umbrella idea of blue economy really encompasses a number of sectors ranging from you know, fisheries, aquaculture, maritime trade, renewable energy, tourism, among others. Uh, as far as pinpointing the, the conception, uh, I don't really think I could, on a global scale, pinpoint it. But you know, here in San Diego, the port has always been a, a champion for a blue economy. We have a, a really significant and historic uh, working waterfront. We have shipbuilding, fisheries, marine research, et cetera. And we've really embraced the idea of a blue economy and, and pushed it further um, in the last let's say, uh, five or 10 years with the establishment of our aquaculture and blue tech program. And in blue tech here, you know, just to add another definition there, uh, blue tech is kind of the advanced tech sector of the maritime industry, right? So it's, it's what really drives the sustainable innovation across emerging markets of the blue economy. So it's a, it's a pretty broad spectrum of industries and technologies ultimately focused on promoting sustainable ocean activities. 
And so can you tell us a bit more about the Port of San Diego and how it's adopting that kind of blue economy through its blue technology programme? And I mean, just kind of give us a bit of a, an idea of some of the, the key priorities for the programme. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, um, I'll step back and say that, you know, the, the Port of San Diego and San Diego Bay are, are really both kind of unique entities so that the port operates as a, as a steward of San Diego Bay. And, and it was created in the in the 60s by California state legislature as a, as a self-supporting public benefit agency. The, the bay itself, which you really note, is, is really unique. I mean, I'm obviously biased because I work there, but, um, but it's, it's, a, it's a significant uh, water body here in Southern California, both ecologically and, and as an economic engine for the region. I mean, it's a home of the really well-established working waterfront, um, the cruise ship maritime trade operations, significant recreational use. Um, there's a really strong naval presence in the bay, and it's all operating within a bay that supports an abundance of natural resources, including critical habitats, so salt marsh habitat, eelgrass habitat, etc. So the port oversees all these operations and resources with a number of stakeholder interests in mind. And, and back in 2016, as a proactive kind of environmental champion approach to supporting innovation and capitalizing on the growth of blue economy, and this is on a global scale, the port created the Aquaculture and Blue Tech Program. And that includes the, the formation of the incubator. So, you know, our, our historical presence here in San Diego Bay, as well as the, the strategic positioning, really supports this kind of endeavor. The goal was to develop a program that could assist in the, the creation and development and, and scaling of innovative, water-dependent business ventures. So ultimately, to build a blue economy portfolio of new businesses that can de- deliver social, environmental, economic benefits to the port and the region and, you know, internally and externally, there's going to be some lessons learned and there have been lessons learned. And, and we look at the communication and the relationships we have well beyond the, the regional limits as well. And can you tell us a little bit more then about how that Blue Economy Incubator works? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the incubator is, is kind of the, the fundamental core of the, the, the Blue Tech program. And it's a way that the port has is, is able to you know, launch sustainable aquaculture, blue tech businesses by removing some of those common barriers for, for the early stage entrepreneurs. We, with our historical presence and our relationships with local and state level agencies, academia, expertise, etc., we're able to uh, provide key assets and support services for entrepreneurs and really kind of streamline that process. And that's that's one of our really good kind of key points that we can bring into the incubator. So we can use that that in-house expertise and, and these existing relationships to help facilitate that, that path from an idea to a reality. And, you know, honestly, it, it's been a really fun run um, so far. We've seen some, some really interesting ideas pitched um, and brought to life, ranging from um, shellfish nursery and seaweed aquaculture to copper remediation technology, smart marina software apps, and obviously, you know, our, our, our recent partnership here with Andrew's team to really reimagine what an urban shoreline can look like and, and how it can function. Mm. And in terms of kind of exploring these innovative solutions, you mentioned there that it's bringing in these entrepreneurs and streamlining that whole process. Is that one of the main ways it is allowing the port to explore those kind of solutions on it? I mean, are there any other ways? Yeah, yeah, there's a number of ways. That's a really unique way because it allows us to have a really broad net. I mean, our relationship with Andrew's team and Econcrete is a prime example of that. You know, this is an international growing uh, endeavor that we've been able to partner with and have a really successful 
project come out of it that can benefit locally and uh, and well beyond. But yeah, we we have uh, you know internal efforts as well. Uh, one of the things that we're looking at right now, um, bay wide, is is identifying opportunities and constraints and for specifically for shoreline stabilization around the bay. So so San Diego Bay, um, just to give you a little more context, uh, greater than seventy five percent of it currently is armored in some capacity with hard armoring, and that's engineered rock riprap revetment or seawall uh, bulkheads, etc. And you know the historical development and presence of this working waterfront has kind of led to that. What we are seeing now and what we are hoping to see now is this kind of innovative approach saying that a hard armoring doesn't have to be purely structural. It can also embed local habitat, biodiversity, it can be an improvement for water quality. Um, it has all these different ecosystem services that can be attached to it. And it really kind of helps us redefine um, not only what a shoreline can look like, but also how we define nature, really. So, yeah, we, we have these internal projects going. I think the blue economy, the interest in that one is that it, it expedites some of those ideas. And it also allows us to see what innovation or what innovative ideas are out there that are pitched to us. And we can say, yes, we oh, that's perfect for us right now. That one's not necessarily applicable to us. But we get to see all of those moving parts in one kind of umbrella. So, I mean, you've touched on that partnership with Econcrete and as part of the, the pilot project, you're, the team is demonstrating a new design for the coastal lock tide pool armour on Harbour Island. So to give a bit of context, can you give us an idea of some of the challenges you're facing at the site in terms of flooding and coastal erosion, that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. So so Harbour Island is actually a uh, it's an artificial tee of an, of an island, essentially, um, within San Diego Bay. So there was a... Um, historically dredge and fill that created this landform essentially uh, on the backside you have marinas and and um, some kind of sheltered protected areas and on the, the front side of it faces directly towards the channel so it gets kind of the brunt of the wave energy that comes through san diego bay and that's wave uh, wind wave energy as well as wake from larger vessels you know like i said we have a strong naval presence cruise ship terminals cargo vessels those have really big wakes that come through and and are damaging our shorelines from an erosion standpoint, as well as some of the uh, the structural context. You know, we just had a project in the last two years that was addressing a lot of damage to some of the docks that we've had based on purely from the, the wake off these vessels. So Harbor Island itself is the the face of it, which is along the channel, is lined by rock revetment. So it's a, it's a stark kind of separation between the terrestrial and the bay itself. There's an ecological, and, and this is me speaking as an environmental conservation specialist, uh, there's a, uh, an ecological separation there between um, the bay and the, the terrestrial side. And there's also a, a, a social separation. So anyone who comes to the bay and is on Harbor Island, their engagement with the bay is purely visual at that point, right? There's just a straight line of rock that separates them. So they don't get that interwoven connectivity where you can start to engage with a wetland habitat or seeing mudflats and, and that kind of, you know, woven fabric. And I think that's a pretty, you know, significant issue that we need to address. So, so there's all these different layers that kind of tap onto these projects. And with Econcrete, we were able to say that there, there are kind of urban contexts that we know we, we have to acknowledge they have to structurally stay in place, right? We can't just make that whole area wetland anymore because there's infrastructure behind it. There's a, this kind of X factor of, public use and amenity space behind it. But 
we can redefine what that shoreline looks like while still providing that structural integrity. And that that's a um, you know just one tool in the toolbox for the entire bay. We have areas in the South Bay and in the North Bay, but South Bay is a whole wildlife refuge. So there's a lot of soft shoreline down there that an example like Bee Concrete might not be applicable, but we're looking at other projects in those areas that are more applicable to soft shoreline. So the e-concrete one is super interesting for us because the vast majority of shoreline is currently armored in some capacity. So we want to address that and say, rather than looking at it as a uh, an issue or, and that's an issue from an ecological standpoint or from a resiliency standpoint, um, we want to look at it as an opportunity and infuse that with innovation. And so we're, we're super pumped to to see where this project is going and scale up on it and also learn from it and, and apply that to new projects as well. And you've maybe touched on this a little bit, but what are some of the key challenges in terms of the existing coastal protection? Globally, sea level rise is, is, a, is an issue that a lot of people are looking at and modeling and addressing and trying to respond to. And, and here at the port, we're doing the same. You know, we, have a, we were one of the first ports to produce our own internal climate action plan that looked at greenhouse gases and looked at uh, um, modeling for flooding and issues that uh, we foresee in the next 30 and 50 years, 100 years out. And we're trying to plan for that both in the policy standpoint in stand, as well as in the, uh, the physical. So I'm, a, um, you know, again, I'm biased because I'm working directly in it, but I, I get to work on the, the physical projects, right? So I get to see what is working and what's not working and and kind of keep pushing that innovation and that creativity to the next level. So, you know, we have uh, a number of areas around the port that are prone to flooding currently with not just storm surge, but high king tides. So we get a, a round of um, really excessive, massive tide swings that, you know, bike paths can flood. Um, we have public spaces that are starting to see scouring under the picnic structures and things like that, that, that are all, related to and indirectly or directly to some form of sea level rise. And we need to address that. We need to say there are options out there that can protect our shoreline while also maintaining and enhancing the, the natural resources. Um, and that's kind of one of the critical things between, you know, the, the traditional hard armoring and then the idea of a nature-based solution. So nature-based solutions, you know, whether it be an, an oyster reef or this kind of hybrid model that we're working with E-Concrete, have an opportunity to be to expand and live and grow so they can potentially, you know, keep up with any kind of sea level rise that we anticipate. So oyster reefs are a biogenic process, right? They grow on top of each other and they have that vertical capacity. The same with e-concrete. Right now, we've we've had that project out there for about a month and we're already seeing um, well-established algae and starting to see growth on there. So it's it's kind of an opportunity to look at, you know, what the next chapter of uh, quote unquote nature can be in an urban context. Mm. So you really are finding that kind of the impact of climate change is accelerating that need for, for improved coastal protection then? Absolutely. It's it's accelerating the need and, and it's also um, opening up the conversation more. So, you know, we have here at the port, we have our own engineering team, our own real estate team, our own environmental team, and we're all having these kind of cross-disciplinary conversations to say, okay, you know, traditionally we would put a wall of rocks here. Let's think about how we can improve on that because it's not just about structural stabilization anymore. And it's not also not about a very specific elevation that we're trying to hit anymore. It's about resiliency and adaptation and, uh, and strategies that can look at a long-term solution 
that don't just pinpoint structural integrity, but they encompass that. But they also look at the entire kind of holistic approach to, to San Diego Bay, which includes a very robust natural resource management kind of strategy. And, and so, Andrew, can you tell us a bit about the pilot project and what it actually involves? Yeah, abs- absolutely. I believe we actually started the, the conversations probably in early or, or, or mid 2019 and, you know, uh, initially went out to, to, to meet Tim and uh, the other staff at the port and uh, gave some initial presentations. And, you know, at that time we had a general idea of, you know, what we could offer the port as far as enhancing the ecological value of their infrastructure. Um, but as the the concept developed and we had a bit of a iterative conversation uh, with them, considering the, the structural and, and environmental needs uh, of the specific shoreline, and we started to then look at, at which uh, st- stretches of shorelines and which locations uh, we could potentially install th- this pilot project. But uh, r- really for us, I think the, the main goal was uh, to provide for retaining features uh, within and, and throughout the intertidal area. So from mean low water to, to mean high water, uh, when you have a traditional rock armored structure, uh, there's really uh, no retaining of water. And, and the importance of retaining of water uh, within the intertidal zone specifically it is that ultimately when it is low tide, then it becomes a, a dried surface and, and that drying between high and low tide ultimately interferes with the biological processes that would allow more developed uh, niches of biology. So, so you may see algae and, you know, more often than not, that's so, sort of the, the extent of it. But if you look at natural uh, retaining features that are available elsewhere in other shorelines within those tidal areas, then you could see much higher levels of ecological development uh, with both sessile and, and uh, motile species. And so really what we wanted to, to do was bring these biological niches into the intertidal area that w- was ultimately being addressed in, in this project. But beyond the, the ecological needs, first and foremost, we always make sure to address the, the structural functionality of the shoreline as well. So we recognize that you know, this rock armoring that is in place is, is there for a reason, as, as Tim said, whether it be a wave or wake-driven energy, uh, currents, uh, storm surge, ultimately these uh, coastal structures are uh, paramount in, in making sure that the, the shoreline is not eroded. So ultimately we need to also make sure that the, the structural needs were being addressed with the solution that we were offering. And, and so why is the Harbour Island site such a, a good testbed for the coastal lock solution? I mean, for, for a number of reasons. One advantage uh, from the standpoint of uh, a pilot study is that it's actually a, a, a long shoreline and the, the shoreline is continuous so that we actually broke down the pilot project. Uh, initially, it was into three areas and then ultimately we decided to do, to, to do two areas, but it actually uh, allowed for uh, a spatial comparison and uh, really between the two sites, it's sort of controlled variability. So you'll have the same wave exposure, same sort of conditions that are being experienced environmentally, but we had the ability to, to space them farther enough that then we could consider them two separate sites and then run a statistical analysis 
ultimately as we do the monitoring over the next several years and support our results. So it's, it's not just looking at one single location, but we're looking at, at two separate locations while still having um, a, a fair degree of confidence of the, the control of the different variables between the two sites. There's also uh, a couple of factors that we, we looked at um, from a, a structural and ecological and, and really a social aspect. But um, structurally, um, you know, like, like I said, we're, we're having these internal conversations with engineering now that really kind of open up the communication about nature-based solutions versus the traditional armoring. So Harbor Island is, is getting the brunt of really intense energy and waves. So if there's a, if there's a successful project in this area, we can then relay that and say, okay, well, it's for sure going to work in this area further south in the Bay where the energy is not as intense. So the pilot project locations right now are extreme wave energy. Um, and, the, and, you know, the San Diego Bay is, is protected um, in comparison to the open ocean, for example, but there are still pretty significant wind wave and wake, wake energy that comes here. But that was one of the, um, one of the, selection criteria. It's not just a really calm area. It's collecting that and absorbing that energy. In addition to that, there is eelgrass, uh, healthy eelgrass habitat directly offshore. So we're interested in that kind of relationship, um, how that's going to work. We are also very aware of that habitat as we went through the construction method and technology and and the, the approach to avoid any impacts to that. So all the lessons learned in that can be um, replicated around the bay as well as you know beyond. So it's all kind of these kind of worst worst case scenarios. We, we're being as very conservative as we can, putting in all their best management practices to avoid those impacts, but saying, okay, if it works here, it can work over there a little easier. And then um, I kind of hinted at it, but but the idea of this kind of social interest is, is, as well, we, we had these conversations with Andrew and Ida and, and, and their team at the onset too, was you know Harbor Island right now has a few hotels on it and the entire engagement with the bay right now is, is is purely visual. So what we wanted to do was engage that that relationship a little bit more. So now, instead of, if you're visiting San Diego Bay, instead of just standing on the rocks and seeing the view, granted it's a beautiful view, now you can actually look down and say, wait a minute, is that an octopus? Or is this, this is a, like a little bit of a, a rocky tide pool scenario that's growing and establishing here, and I can interact and engage with that a little bit more, and I can be more familiar with the the natural system within the bay. So all three of those things really kind of highlighted and, and zoned in on Harbor Island, in, in addition to, you know, the actual accessibility from a pilot standpoint. Um, so th- there are a number of factors that led there. Um, ultimately, it was, a, it was a great selection, and it'll help us understand the scalability and the applicability around the bay and other areas. And I wonder, yeah, it sounds like a great combination. I guess it would be interesting, Andrew, to know a little bit more about how exactly then the coastal tide pool armor works and maybe if you can explain a little bit about what is new about the design that you will be demonstrating on the on the pilot project. Yeah, absolutely. So the uh Coastal lock, uh, as you said, is an armoring unit. So ultimately, it's gravity based or, or it's stabilized through its actual weight and mass. So we have one previous uh, tide pool design that's actually about 1.6 tons. 
This tide pool unit is sort of a second generation of that, but it is 3.5 tons. So to, to speak to what Tim had just mentioned as far as the levels of exposure, really uh, from the onset, you know, as one of our prime objectives, we, we were looking to develop a unit that could withstand the, the hydrodynamic action of, of fully exposed uh, coastal sites. So beyond the actual weight of the unit and, and its structural function to, to stabilize the shoreline, the way it functions is, is that ultimately within this unit, uh, there's a, a very large cavity. And uh, during periods of tidal variation, the water will go up from low tide to high tide, fill the tidal pool, um, flush out the water that's in there, basically uh, allow for, for, for new nutrients and uh, fresh levels of dissolved oxygen to enter, enter that area. And then uh, as the tide recedes, then it's retained in, in that cavity. So ultimately, then the different species are allowed to continue to develop uninterrupted uh, between the periods of low and high tide, which, you know, wherever you are in the world depends to change, but it could be anywhere from uh, about uh, six hours on average. And I mean, we've already touched on the issue of of climate change, but in terms of the, the project itself, how are you approaching sustainability across the pilot? And can you tell us a bit about, you know, the expected carbon footprint for the scheme? Ultimately, we are addressing the, the ecological design of the unit in several ways. And within that, we're, we're, we're touching on, on, on the carbon footprint within that design. But the first thing we do is actually we have a bioenhancing admixture, an ecological admixture. And you can really consider it sort of the, the salt and pepper of the concrete mix. And uh, really what it's doing is it's allowing for the composition of the concrete to be a more suitable substrate for the, the marine organisms. Beyond that, we're actually then beyond the the retaining feature on on a micro scale as well, introducing the principles of ecological engineering. And really that's increased surface roughness, surface complexity and rugosity on a micro scale. And then on a larger scale, it's those elements of retaining water and providing shelter and refuge to to, to these species. Uh, So really the the end result of that is that we're promoting these marine species or encouraging the development of these healthy ecosystems systems. And, you know, in in other projects uh, using the first generation type pool where they've been established for longer periods of time and we've been able to do uh, post-installation monitoring, we found uh, upwards of a dozen and a half different species within the tidal cavity uh, where the adjacent uh, rock armoring was was typically limited to uh, less than half of a dozen or or less. Um, As I said earlier, mostly just green turf algae. So the benefit of that, um, not only are we actually enhancing the ecological performance and allowing for healthier ecosystems, but from the the, the standpoint of the the carbon footprint, a lot of these organisms are actually uh, calcium carbonate-based organisms, and they actually act as a a carbon sink. Um, And then you also have processes of photosynthesis as well, which is also contributing to that further. But as far as the the actual construction or fabrication of of the concrete units, the the admixture itself actually replaces uh, 10% of the Portland cement content. So Portland cement uh, has a very high carbon footprint. So concrete is actually the the second most consumed material in the world after water, and it it comprises about 8% uh, of of the world's CO2 footprint. And and really the, the reason for that is the process 
of making the, the cement is very carbon intensive. So the more that we can reduce the actual amount of cement in the, the concrete, the more we can reduce the carbon footprint. So the admixture itself is actually byproducts uh, from the quarry industry, and it's 92% carbon neutral. So we replace 10% of the, the cement, and we can reduce the carbon content uh, by applying the admixture. Uh, beyond that, in this case, uh, we actually also uh, added other byproducts as a replacement to the cement content. So um, depending upon the region and what's locally available, in, in this case, uh, we were able to replace, I think, uh, approximately about 15 to 20% of the cement content with fly ash. Basically, you have the the ash from uh, nuclear reactors, and then uh, you can use that as a replacement for cement. Um, beyond that, in other regions we're working, you have uh, slag, ground granulated blast furnace slag from industrial furnaces, uh, which can also be used as a cement replacement. And we can actually, where that's readily available, it, it happens is it's not readily available on the West Coast, but on the East Coast it is, we can do upwards of 60%. Uh, replacement of the cement content. So really, you know, depending upon where the units are being produced, we can reduce the carbon footprint of the concrete by approximately 70%. And and really, these, these sort of technologies are, are nothing that's new. Really, the, the Romans created hydraulic concrete thousands of years ago. And the way they went about that was adding volcanic ash into the concrete mix design. And that's what allowed it to cure underwater and, and get stronger over time. And that's why, you know, to, today concrete is the go-to material for coastal construction with over 70% of the world's infrastructure being concrete-based. And in terms then of the, the construction phase of the project, what are some of the major challenges you're facing on site from the point of view of mitigating any impact on, on the existing coastline and coastal ecosystems? Yeah, in, in this case, as, as Tim had mentioned, there was actually eelgrass at the very close uh, proximity to, to the structure. So we needed to make sure that throughout the entire construction process that we did not disturb that eelgrass. So so uh, the port actually went out and, and they surveyed the area. They, they saw where the eelgrass was present. Then we were able to use that information during the construction process to avoid that eelgrass as much as possible and not cause a disruption to it. And then we also have to do... Uh, a, a post-construction survey as well, and, and then submit that to, to the local authorities. I'm sure Tim can speak to that more. Beyond that also, uh, as there was in a structure that was currently in existence, um, so there was a rock armor shoreline, and we were removing portions of that rock armoring and replacing it with the, the concrete units. So we basically had to maintain the volume of fill within the intertidal and subtidal area so that we were not adding extra material to the shoreline. So that was also something that we had to be uh, very aware of during the design process when we were determining the size and shape of the units. And on that note, you know, Andrew's team and the, the contractor who were involved did a really incredible job because it, it's really important to note that this shoreline, specifically at Harbor Island, is, I mean, that's like mid-1900s when that was first built. So we're looking at, you know, 70 plus year old revetment. And when they started to peel that open, there were a lot of, a lot of kind of surprises. <laughs> so, so, you know, from a structural integrity standpoint, as well as from a material composition standpoint, and we, we, we've seen this around the Bay too, you know, we've done a, a this isn't the first iteration of a, of a shoreline repair, but it's really interesting when you start to see concrete rubble, old sidewalk chunks, concrete like that, um, as well as 
rock sizes and boulder sizes that don't match up with the construction drawings that, that were hand drawn back, you know, in the fifties. So there's a lot of lessons learned on that end and, and their team uh, as kind of, you know, in coordination with the ports project management team um, answered a lot of those questions kind of on the, on the fly. And that, you know, that's kind of routine for field work as well. But in this aspect, um, there's a lot of eyes on it. And there's also a lot of potential opportunity for that adding to impacts to the natural resources. So that had to be really packaged well and, uh, and understood. And every iteration of that had to be well thought out. And when, when did the work on site begin then? And how long is the, the construction phase of the project expected to take? I believe we started at the end of February 2021, and I, I'm pretty sure, t- Tim, correct me if I'm wrong, what was it? It was done about about uh, mid to late March, if I'm not mistaken, or we might have started in mid-February and, and went to, to early March. And... Yeah, that, that's correct. Um, we, we actually started in, in at the end of January for about a day and a half and then realized some of the structural issues didn't align with the construction set. So that's when we kind of took a step back. And, and, and all the work also um, was really tide dependent. So lower tides were optimal for, for the work to be done to kind of set that toe in. So that first iteration was kind of just an exposure, like a uh, aha moment where you see, you, you see the shoreline for what it is and not for what the construction set saw it was. So we reevaluated, waited for that next tide swing, that next tide window, and then got it back out there in February and cranked it out pretty pretty quickly uh i mean for these two locations and for as small as this pilot project is it's a it's a pretty a pretty serious endeavor when you start to pull out shoreline as and like like we're saying that is you know kind of at the brunt of this major wave energy and wave action that comes through there so i believe it was the first week of march everything was was really buttoned up and tied up and then as as um, andrew alluded to there's going to be multiple a multi-year uh uh, monitoring aspect, both from a, a biological and a structural kind of physical standpoint. And, and so what kind of maintenance is going to be required after installation? Yeah, ultimately, the, the units are uh, intended to be completely self-maintaining. So the fact that they're they're washed out twice daily w- with high tide w- would uh, eliminate the uh, ability of any debris or, or stagnant water. Uh, so really, the intent with with all of the units we develop is, is that they're self-sustaining, and not only with uh, the way the biology develops, but also from from a structural standpoint. And, and Tim, you touched on the fact that there's going to be this kind of multi-year monitoring of, of the project. So how will you be monitoring what's going on there and how you be me- measuring, I guess, the success of the pilot scheme? Sure. Well, um, success on two ends. So the, the, the biological success, the recruitment and establishment of a, a, new, ecos- or a new kind of localized ecosystem and, and habitat and the improvements to water quality, et cetera. And then the, the structural integrity and the physical composition so at the onset, um, we worked with Andrew and E-Concrete to really develop a monitoring plan that evaluates this, um, and it's a, it's a minimum of two years out. I will say in addition to the, and, and this is all kind of wrapped in within the, the, the permitting language and the permitting scheme, but beyond that, there's been a lot of interest from uh, academia, from local consultants, from uh, the environmental field in general for additional monitoring. Um, we have in-house staff that is monitoring it for just overall kind of visual establishment. And then it's really interesting to see, you know, there, there are requests coming in now saying, can I, you know, I've been studying this for my 
my PhD and, and it'd be a great opportunity to jump out there and look at this as a, as a, you know, real time example. Can I have some access to it? So there, there's a lot of kind of moving conversations on the monitoring end right now, but we, uh, you know, we've defined our monitoring plan um, that, that eConcrete is leading the effort on. And for us, it's anticipated that the, both the, the physical, which is kind of, you know, the, the, the liability and the integrity of the shoreline, it performs equal to or greater than what's currently out there. And then the, the biological is, is a little bit easier to hit because that target is so low right now. Um, there is some rock, rock revetment is not entirely sterile, right? There, there are oysters kind of populating their lobsters in there and things like that, but this is going to optimize and, and improve on that significantly is the hope. We are also looking at, um, and this is kind of baywide with other projects too, uh, non-native species and how that plays in and how that factors in. So the anticipation is that the design and the features that are embedded into the project optimize native recruitment and establishment. We are well aware that there are non-native species within the bay and they might establish too, and we just need to document and understand how that balances out in the, in the, in the whole conversation. And you've maybe touched a little bit on kind of the future already, but looking ahead to the end of, of the three-year pilot, what are some of the main objectives that you hope um, you will achieve through the project? Our expectations and our hope is that we are able to you know, reimagine the urban waterfront. We want to look at shorelines beyond just a structural composition. So how can we be innovative and creative and at the same time aware of the, the structural needs? So this is one of many you know, kind of scalable projects within the incubator program. Uh, so the, the opportunity is certainly there to scale this out as is. Um, there's also going to be some lessons learned from it as we go, and we are anticipating. And, and you know, with any pilot project, you kind of hope there are lessons learned, right? Because there's going to be some unanswered um, or some unanticipated events that kind of create a more robust idea at the end. So you know, we'll be working with the concrete kind of on, on a very regular basis to say this seemed to work, um, this didn't. Even just the orientation of these units, right? Like I remember having conversations with Andrew about just the vertical or the, the horizontal alignment of the units. And they're, they're able to be kind of oriented in different manners. And what we've found in the Bay is that some species prefer the underside of elements and some species prefer to be in that kind of traditional tide pool that, that fills and, and drains out. Um, so we're looking at all of that and all of these, all this data can be com- compounded at the end and really inform the next iteration, whether it be just a, a scaled up version or whether it be a twist on the current design. And ultimately, we as in the port want to look at the entire bay as an opportunity for a more sustainable, resilient, adaptive shoreline, um, because the, the current armoring as is, it just, it, it just doesn't fly uh, beyond a structural um, component, especially when we start to bring in the conversation of sea level rise and climate change. Now, we're looking for lessons learned, obviously, uh, from the ecological standpoint, from the structural standpoint. And, you know, we're definitely going to to take all the, the information we gather o- over the next two years or so and, you know, 
re-put that back into the design process and, and, and see what needs to be altered uh, on the design of the unit. But uh, really more so, this is one of our first large-scale uh, deployments on, on, on the West Coast. And as Tim ha- had mentioned, there's a lot of uh, interest uh, from various stakeholders. And really what we're hoping is, is that this pilot project will, will, will ultimately open the door to, to future projects. So not only will we be looking at uh, retrofitting uh, existing structures, but you know, ne- next time an, a new shoreline needs to be developed, that these sort of technologies w- will be looked at from the onset. And then, uh, you know, again, as, as Tim has said, we, we really want to build the, the resilience of our infrastructure over time and accounting for increased frequency of storms and, and, and increasing uh, levels of sea rise over, over time. And, you know, this is just really one of the ways that you can go about doing that with, you know, something that is traditionally a very static material such as concrete by working with nature ultimately we are opening gateways for for that structure to develop and evolve over time with the dynamic conditions of the environment and you know the the larger sort of the the scale of these deployments uh, the, the more resilient regionally these different types of coastal marine infrastructure will, will become as well as the impact from an ecological standpoint will, will be magnified so you know you can then start to, to look then on, on a regional scale um, and, and say you know what has been the impact of this increased productivity uh, of our marine ecosystems and so I guess ultimately the hope is that the, the project is almost a, a blueprint for, for future coastal protection projects, not just along the West Coast, but around the world, potentially. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to, to date, we have about uh, 30 projects in, in over eight different countries uh, across six different seas. But uh, in, in the long term, we, we are looking to be, you know, ecological concrete, if not e-concrete, to, to be a requirement in, in the marine realm. Um, you know, the, the, the problems with concrete have, have been very well documented. The limitations of concrete are very well known. And, you know, it will continue to be the, the go-to material for coastal marine construction as most types of construction moving into the future. But if, if we could ultimately increase the effectiveness and, and reduce the, the carbon footprint of that, and, and as, as has been said, increase the, the resiliency of, of these structures over time, we'll see uh, not only an improvement in, in the environment and in the ecological uh, systems, but as well as a significant return on investment. You know, we, we, we've seen uh, significant evidence that shows that you can expect a re- reduction in maintenance requirements and increase in lifespan if you work with nature, uh, with your concrete infrastructure. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us today. There's clearly a lot of exciting milestones ahead for the pilot project, and we'll certainly be watching to see how the work progresses and the potential benefits for the wider industry. But that concludes another episode of the Engineers Collective. Thank you all for listening in, and I hope you can join us again soon. This podcast is brought to you in association with Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com.